Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, author Elspeth Sands recounts her search for her communist cousin, cultural revolutionary Grewi Ali, to Matt Nippet at Going West 2019. Please welcome to the stage Elspeth and Matt. And I leave it in your very capable hands. Thank you. Well, um, Elspeth, I must say, this is an extraordinary book. Um, <laughs> and I guess... Uh, it's extraordinarily the, kind of you to say so. <laughs> I, guess, I guess the best place to start here is to try to um, explain, I guess, the, the, the Alley family tree, or as you sketch in your book, it's more like a, a scrub. Um, <laughs> and that uh, it seems wildly complicated and, it's, yes. and the roots often intertwine. Now, um, so could you just talk through sort of where, where you fit and where Ali fits? Because he was sort of the, the black sheep of, of the family, of his wasn't particular he? particular family, yes. He, Rui and my mother were first cousins and the two fathers, my grandfather and Rui's father, were brothers. Um, my grandfather was a horrible man. <laughs> Sorry, grandfather. Um, he, he liked horses, but not people. He was he was an incredibly cruel, um, not actively cruel, but uh, just a very severe um, Baptist Christian, you know, strict person. Rui's father was much more benign. He was a school teacher, but he was not kind to Rui. Rui was the black sheep of the family. He didn't grow to six feet, which was kind of required. Um, his brother Jeff grew to six feet something and became an all black. Uh, his siblings all went into university jobs and nursing and so on. And Rui, as this five foot six, um, fairly rebellious, um, real, you know, kind of a permanent teenager in, in a state of rebellion, uh, he was, he definitely was the one that felt he had to go somewhere else and make a life for himself. So that was a big factor in the decisions he made in his life. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, and obviously uh, Rui has sort of loomed in, in, over your life. Can, can you talk about uh, these sort of memories you had <laughs> when, when you were younger about uh, sort of interacting with him in the, in the rather well, quite extraordinary moments of his life? Yes. Well, you have a wonderful word, fungible. Does anybody know this word, fungible? <laughs> uh, that I, that it talks about, you talk about fungible memories. And I have an absolutely vivid memory of sitting on Rui's knee, aged sort of maybe three, or four, bouncing up and down on this bouncy up and down person and, you know, loving being with him. It's totally false, this memory. Uh, I couldn't have done it because he wasn't in New Zealand when I was that, that age. I also have another vivid memory, which I can see, of my mother pushing him into a wardrobe and shutting the wardrobe door quite firmly. She was every bit as Bolshe as he was, and saying, you stay in there and I'll deal with the journalists. Now, that didn't happen either because <laughs> <laughs> the dates when he came to New Zealand just simply don't fit. So I can only think that because he was talked about all the time in my household and he was talked about rather behind closed doors because my father was a staunch member of the National Party um, and a much nicer man, I have to say, than my mother, a much nicer person than my mother, but it was my mother who influenced the way I thought. And I was so excited by the thought of this uncle, he was an uncle when I was growing up, um, who was in this 
foreign land that was unimaginably foreign and had adopted children and one of them became my, my pen pal and they lived way up in these mountains on the verge of a country called Mongolia. You know, I mean, there couldn't be anything more exciting. So I guess I just transposed the stories I heard into my own experience. But I have to tell you, those experiences in my mind now are totally real, but they didn't happen. So... I learned a lot about the fungibility of memory. <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. something I would want to um, come back to later because while it can, um, it's an interesting exercise for a memoirist to, to go through and decide <laughs> what treasured family stories are true and what are not yeah. and which ones are not that you still want to keep anyway because you like them so much. <laughs> yeah. um, but on a national scale, um, history can also be rewritten and I think um, we'll touch on that both in terms of yeah. China and New Zealand and yeah. their relationship to Rewe. But I mean... You recount in your books of uh, you had never been to China before. No, right? no. That's right. No. But I, mean, I tried to go. And we really had, had invited you. Yes, yeah, and that was the middle of the Cultural Revolution. <laughs> um, and he, I was, according to Rui's diaries, I was coming to China to write his biography. I have no memory of committing to do that at all. I had young children, and um, I, I'm sure, and I'm not a biographer. But uh, he was very keen for me to come. He loved he loved people to come because they could take his artefacts, the, all the artwork that he was collecting back to New Zealand, which was what he wanted. Um, but I phoned the Chinese embassy to see if I could get a visa to travel with my children back through China. And after several phone calls being put onto several different numbers, I was finally told, you find China all full up. <laughs> no visa. <laughs> So I didn't get to go. So, but you, but yeah. you, did, you did go eventually in uh, 2017, yeah. which mm-hmm. sounds like quite a, um, a remarkable uh, tour, th- well, a, a very uh, stage-managed tour stage-managed. through uh, mm-hmm. Rewi's life. I mean, what was your impression as a complete outsider of the, the, this remarkable country? <laughs> How long have we got? Um, well, we, was, we were very stage-managed, but we were also allowed to wander as we liked. So we did have lots of amazing conversations outside the structured um, formal, because we were invited by the government to celebrate Rui's 90 years since Rui arrived in China. And nine is um, a, a very particular number in Chinese law. It was, the, it was the emperor's number. And even though they've got rid of emperors, they, they still keep some of these um, feelings about certain things being. So nine is important, not 10. So the 90th anniversary would be celebrated, but not the 100th. So we were, we were on a, 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 we were very controlled in the sense that we had to always move on somewhere else. We suffered far too many banquets. We all put on weight. Um, we, we all got drunk. Uh, we, we, uh, just because we kept having to do toasts, you know, and if you're not used to drinking strong Chinese liquor um, and you're having to do at least half a dozen toasts to Chairman Xi Jinping and Rui Ali and the Ali family and blah, 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 you, you, you end up having to be carried home. <laughs> so there, there was quite a lot of that. Um, but it was, it was a wonderful experience too because of the esteem with which Rui is held in China. He, he is enormous. There are sta- One man told me there are more statues of Rui than of Mao Zedong. I don't believe that, but <laughs> certainly up in the northwest, you, just about every place we went to, oh, there's Rui with George Hock. Oh, there's Rui with Xi Jinping's father. Xi Jinping's father was the patron of the school that Rui taught at. So he's, he's very big there. 
And the Chinese don't like you to criticize their heroes. Once you're put in that pantheon of being um, an important, particularly an important revolutionary figure, you, you're not to criticize them. But um, that's not how I've written the book, so it probably won't get published in China. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you've lost, the, lost uh, out on millions of sales. I now, know, I know, yes. Well, I'd just like to um, break now to talk about uh, the, the life and times of Riwi, because, I mean, he mm. lived... In an ex, in a, like uh, what I think is probably the most one of the most interesting period of history. So the the twenties and thirties, and he arrived in China for the first time in was it twenty twenty seven? Twenty seven. And this was a you've got to remember that China at this point um, bits of it were owned by Portugal, France, England, um, Japan. J- Japan had what was then occupying mm-hmm. in America, and and then of course there was a civil war raging as well. Yes. I mean, yes. could you just give us a sense of sort of the the the, the scale of this? This grand historic drama that was going on, because this is, uh, you know, you're also talking about hundreds of millions of people. Yes. Well, I think w- when Rui arrived in China, he, he, he really knew nothing about it. He'd, he'd read in the Auckland Weekly when he was farming up in um, the wilds of Taranaki in a completely impossible farming situation, like so many returned servicemen. He was given unfarmable land, which he farmed for six years with a partner and then walked off it. And having walked off it, left it to his partner, he thought, well, now what do I do? Basically, what he wanted to do was stay in the army. He, he always thought of himself as a soldier, which is quite surprising. It's not, what, it's not how the Chinese promote him. They saw him more as a pacifist, but he was always a soldier. Um, so he, he'd read about this revolution in China, and he, what he said to his family was, I'm going to go and take a look at it. So <laughs> he arrives in Shanghai, and, um, and I do have fun describing his arrival in Shanghai because I can sort of feel, having been to China, and it's, it's, it's a big enough um, assault on your senses now, what it must have been like in 1927 with people racing around all over the place, gunshots, wound over here, dead bodies here. Um, you, then you get into the international concessions and everything's beautiful and there are lovely European plane trees and beautiful little cafes and so on. So you're living in this completely weird world where you've got the rich Shanghai with the nightclubs and the new cinemas and everything and then you've got all this poor China all around it just um, swirling around and there was, um, he was told on the first day he arrived that there was something called the White Terror that was happening and the White Terror was being orchestrated by the nationalist government uh, under Chiang Kai-shek who had uh, broken the um, alliance with the Communist Party that his predecessor, Sun Yat-sen, who was the leader of the New Republic, he's the father of the Republic, and he had quite wisely seen that these two aspects of China, the those who were still connected to the Western powers and this new upsurge movement called communism, that they needed to work together, that it would be fatal if they separated out. But Chiang Kai-shek took a different view and he decided that communists were a bigger enemy than any of the European powers who were exploiting China and wrecking it. I have to say I'm surprised the Chinese are even prepared to tolerate us after what we did in the Opium Wars and so on. But they, um, Chiang, Chiang Kai-shek decided that communists must be destroyed. So he, would, he was rounding them up, and there are hundreds and thousands. Anybody who belonged to a union, anybody who wore red, the, the communist 
colour was in danger of just being arbitrarily rounded up. Thousands of people were just shot in the street, uh, rounded up into stadiums and shot. I mean, it was incredible. So this is what Rui arrives in. At the same time, he spends his first three nights in the British concession, where everything is very orderly and people are saying, hello, old chap, you know, see you later down at the bar and all of this is going on. The policemen are all Sikhs. Uh, so he's in this weird, straight away in this weird mindset. But of course, being Rui, he's not going to stay in the concessions and, and uh, not go out and find out what's happening everywhere else. Yeah, as we just um, go back 10 years, and I think this is quite, quite formative with, with Rui. Um, you know, because he, he, was, he was a soldier. Mm. He did, um, you know, enlist and fight in World War I. Yeah. I mean, how do you think that experience shaped um, sort of his later view, particularly of sort of the <laughs> imperial powers yes. and having seen sort of the, the worst of Europe? Yes. He, when he arrived in China, he, he was still a, a supporter of empire. Um, he voted national in his last election before he left New Zealand. So he was not, you know, he didn't go with all that his views formed. His views were formed in China through his, the experiences he had. He stayed loyal to the empire for quite a while. He was, he was an empire servant, really, because he was working for the Shanghai Fire Service, which was controlled by the British. Um, but he immediately started uh, making trouble as soon as he got into the fire service and then later on became a factory inspector, he wanted to know why our children working in these silk factories with no protection from the, the vats and the boiling over water, they've all got these terribly scalded hands, and why are children working with chromium and getting chromium holes in their skin and everything. And, okay, you know, he made the owners of these factories put in some improvements. So he was, he was not behaving like a typical British uh, person in China to make his fortune. Most people who went, there were 6,000 British living in Shanghai at the time, um, and they were all there to make their fortune. It was a great, you know, that's where you go. Go to China and make money to hell with the Chinese. Mm. Yeah, well, one, uh, one of the interesting conclusions you draw here um, relates to Rui's sexuality. Because, I mean, yeah. it's, um, he, he's a, a curious character in many ways. You know, he's a New Zealander who um, was fairly involved in the Chinese Revolution. But also um, he, never, um, he never married, never had any children of his own. Um, and it was even amongst your family, it was widely considered he was gay. But you've come to a... A, a, a different conclusion. Just yeah. talk through why, right. <laughs> why you think that. Uh, well, uh, my mother never thought he was gay. <laughs> um, a lot of people, never, a lot of a lot of his siblings, never thought he was gay. Um, he, he he may well have been. I, I don't come down firmly on one side or another. But the evidence is very strong uh, on on two levels. One, he he loved women. Um, he was very, very close to Sung Ching Ling, who was the widow of Sun Yat-sen. They uh, had pet names for each other. Uh, they lived very close together in, in, in Shanghai later after the Cultural Revolution. Sung Ching Ling was responsible, along with Zhou Enlai, for the fact that Rui didn't get uh, sent to jail during the Cultural Revolution. They destroyed their correspondence to each other at the end of their lives by agreement. Um, Sung Chingling was a Susie, and Rui was Bill in all their correspondence. They had a, a delightful relationship. He also had a very close relationship with uh, Han Suen, the novelist who wrote um, A Splendid Thing. 
He had a very close relationship with a woman called Shirley Barton, who was a, 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 a Corso um, representative in China, and he almost certainly asked her to marry him. But she didn't. She went back, and I, there's a letter from him to her saying, well, I really miss you, and I'm really sad that you said no, but I think it was probably the best thing for you that you said this China life is pretty tough. He was very lonely. This comes through particularly after the Sandan School was closed down by Mao Zedong. He was very lonely. That was where he had his life. He had this huge school with um, boys and girls at the school. Uh, he was so busy, he didn't have time to be lonely. But when he was sent back to um, Beijing and, and put very settled down very comfortably, the, the government wasn't going to have him living like the Chinese live, but he, um, he, was, he was very lonely. And he did have many close women friends, or two women at least were in love with him. Ida Pruitt, who was a um, part of Ian, um, uh, Indusco, the fundraising part of the gung-ho movement. Um, so that, that was one evidence. The other evidence is that, that he, he was impotent. He was wounded in the First World War uh, through the thigh, and it came out through the other side, I think. And he, he never talked about it, never talked about his wounds. He had a piece of shrapnel in his shoulder that gave him a lot of pain, but he, you know, you just know that he, it was there because he'd suddenly do this trying to get rid of it. Um, and he told David Mann, a New Zealander who saw a lot of him in the last decade of his life, David Mann confronted him with the Anne-Marie Brady thesis that not only was he gay, but he was possibly a bit, bit naughty. And he was very, very hurt by that. He, David describes him as just being silent, sitting there for a long time saying nothing. And then he said, well, I can imagine what the Chinese would have done to me if they thought I'd been interfering with little boys. And then he said, but the truth is I would have been no use to man or woman because I was wounded in the First World War. So, I mean, that's straight from him. So that's my evidence that if he was gay, he didn't do anything about it. <laughs> um, if he was heterosexual, he didn't do anything about it because he couldn't. I mean, as Kim Hill said to me in her rather um, fierce interview, uh, <laughs> being impotent doesn't stop you being gay. <laughs> she said. Um, but anyway, uh, my, the main evidence is, is his love for all these women in his life. And he wrote poems about how he wished he had a wife and children and he would love to be lying in bed with a lovely woman beside him and so on. He didn't ever write a poem saying he'd love to be lying in bed with a man beside him. Would he have been able no, to? No, <laughs> probably not. Although the Chinese were very laid back about um, gay. The, the Communist Party was officially against it, but basically they, they didn't care. Um, Anne-Marie's thesis that he didn't come back to New Zealand because it was easier to be gay in China is, is really rubbish because it wasn't... It, it was easy enough if you just didn't do anything about it. But the Chinese... The, the, the country... The party was against it. The Chinese people themselves are, think it's fine to be gay. They don't worry about that, but you've got to have a child. If you don't have a child, you haven't honoured your ancestors. So... Um, that's how they deal with it. It's just not a big issue. It's been so much more of an issue, I think, in um, Western countries than it has been in Asian countries. Maybe that's a broad statement. Don't challenge me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, fortunately, perhaps unfortunately, uh, we've got a lot to get through. And I want to cover... Because um, Riwi, the reason... 
for its significance is that effectively he, he joined and assisted the communist revolution back when it was, wasn't clear no, to succeed no. or not. And so there's always a handful of people who are um, in, instrumental in uh, a... A great, a great movement. I mean, once, once it's rolling, and you know, once the, once the party's running the state, yeah. everyone's a member. But he was <laughs> um, very, very early on in the piece, and just, I mean, I'm not sure how much New Zealand audiences appreciate the this, the well, it's literally a heroic struggle of mm. uh, of Mao Zedong versus the nationalists, and that mm. sort of 99 percent attrition rate during the Great mm. March, sorry, during mm. the Long March. Um, could just, and also the the role really played in sort of. Uh, sh- Shifting the industry away from the vulnerable yeah. seaboard into the interior with the gung ho movement. Could you just talk us through the, the again the scale of that? Because effectively, that, that, that saw the population of New Zealand at the time being uh, redeployed, which is yes. a, a, an enormous undertaking. It, I mean, it, it's utterly extraordinary and, and, and miraculous. I mean, it's miraculous that the Long March succeeded. I mean, the, the incredible uh, courage. Mao Zedong then was an impressive character. I have to say he believed in democracy. He believed in not having offices and everybody slept in the same, on the same kangs, the Chinese beds that you all slept on the bed. Um, same food. And they often had no food at all. Rui's role was, which he was reluctant to take on at first, but this group of revolutionaries, um, Americans, uh, Jewish refugees, uh, British, um, quite a little group of, of uh, Europeans, basically, who were in Shanghai and desperately wanting to help China. They were there, like they, some of them had fought in the Spanish Civil War and come on to, this was the next country to try and help out of its terrible imperial um, past. And Rui was tasked with moving, literally moving, all the industry that the, on the, in Shanghai and on the eastern seaboard that the Jap- where the Japanese had invaded, and of course they were destroying the industry, moving as much as he could of it up to the northwest where they figured the Japanese wouldn't get that far. So, I mean, there are just descriptions in his diaries of dismantling a thing called the Gosh cotton machine, you know, and he was dismantling it with his hands. I mean, this was a hands-on enterprise. They would get hold of Soviet trucks and pile all this stuff onto the trucks, and when they couldn't get trucks, they'd get donkeys, and when they couldn't get donkeys, they'd carry it on their backs just to get it through the Japanese lines to a place where they could re-establish it, and the it wasn't Rui's idea, gung-ho, it was put to him uh, in the form of, well, Rui, you understand the Chinese and how they work cooperatively very well. Why don't you set up cooperatives up in the northwest to get this industry going again? So he did, and by the end of the war, there were something like 400,000 cooperatives all over the northwest China um, producing bullets, bandages, pottery, printing machines, everything that the Red... It was for the Red Army. That was the the, uh, impetus. But then Rui was hoping that after the war, these cooperatives would remain as as a way of getting the peasants out of poverty. So it was a huge movement. And there's a letter from Matsu talking to to the gung-ho movement saying you have played a vital part in in the success of uh, of getting rid of the Japanese. Mm. So you, you go from this, this, this praise from Mao Zedong, when obviously <laughs> really, you know, he, he ate with them, talked with them mm. many, many times, but within 15 years, I mean, that relationship had, had utterly yeah. soured, hadn't it? I mean, yeah. he'd 
really went from a sort of a figure of uh, national um, significance in China to mm. effectively being placed under house arrest during yes. the Cultural Revolution, yes. didn't yes. he? Yes. Please yes. talk us through, I mean, that period of his life um, seems quite depressing. Oh, I think he was depressed and several people who saw him during that time, not many could get into China through in that decade of the Cultural Revolution, but they saw a depressed man who nevertheless put on the best face of it and said positive things about China because that was his job. But uh, he ended up in a conversation with David Mann, um, possibly feeling he was old enough now and he could be indiscreet. And he said Mao was a prick. For, he said, A, for what he did to his friends. I mean, all his European friends, except for Anna Louise Strong, the American woman that he shared a house with, they were all jailed and, and put in solitary confinement. Rui was extraordinarily lucky that uh, he, he wasn't jailed, but his two sons were, and uh, Alan, his eldest son, was put in a jail where he was badly beaten up. Um, he managed to escape, uh, and Joe and Lai then, um, he went to Joe and Lai, who was kind of like a godfather to him. And uh, Joe said, well, well I, can't, I can't have you free. You, you, you've got to go back to prison, but I'll make sure you go to one where they don't beat you up. So Rui felt deeply, deeply disappointed in Mao not only for that, for the Cultural Revolution, which initially Rui supported. I mean, he, was, he believed in revolution. He believed that revolution was the only way things were changed in China, which is interesting with what's going on in Hong Kong. Um, but he, he changed, soon changed his mind, but he couldn't officially do that. So he wrote an appallingly bad book called Travels in China, which is that thick, um, which was his touring around the, um, the communes. Uh, Joe and Lai sent him off on it and said, just go around and visit all the communes and write about it. That's something positive you can do. But it's a terrible book. Um, and he said that what he, what he couldn't forgive Mao for was he said he came in, he led a revolution against feudalism, and then he established his own feudalism. Yeah, I and mean, it's a really interesting thought experiment there to see um, how much we would romanticise the Chinese revolution had it failed. Um, because I think one of the great appeals of, of Spain that you brought up was um, it, it, it was a struggle, and, and we never got to see what a um, uh, what a what, what a communist or a Republican yeah. Spain yeah. would have looked like. And yeah. I, if you're not accountable for what came after, it's um, it's it's much easier. Yes, <laughs> and it's yes. much easier to romanticise and to think of this as a heroic struggle. Yes, because of course what we see now in China is, is quite remarkable. We talked about the fungibility of, uh, you know, people's personal memories. But, you know, when you went through, um, you, you were struck by uh, some Chinese students not even knowing that anything had happened at Tiananmen Square. No. And, no. I mean, we could also the... The, uh, the great marvel, technological marvel of the Great Firewall means that, you know, history can effectively be, be edited yes. in real yes. time. Yes. I mean, this is... A bit of a concern. <laughs> Huge concern, <laughs> mind you. The, the Chinese are very clever. They have all, you know, they they laughed when we said we can't communicate with our families. You know, the Google firewall is um, is <laughs> is stopping us. And they said, ha ha ha, and they'd show us a little app. Okay, and they'd say, you know, but don't show anyone. But you put this app on your phone, and then you do that. So I mean, they're they're. I have huge faith in the Chinese people despite the unfortunate things that are going on at the moment and which can't be glossed over in Hong Kong and in um, the Ouija province, Xinjiang. Um, I just have huge faith in the Chinese people that they are 
they won't sit they won't sit down under another tyranny i mean they they've all they're all picking the way that Xi Jinping is going a little bit along the Mao line. He's enshrined his thought into the constitution. That's what Mao did, so that people had to go around with a little red book and recite. You know, that's what they, they did in the Cultural Revolution. All the Red Guards were constantly reciting from the, the little red book, um, which I've got, which is <laughs> extremely boring. Um, I, I, you know, I think they will, I think the Chinese people will find a way through this. At the moment, they're just grateful not to be starving in vast numbers. And you have to remember that, you know, starvation is just there behind them. And starvation in terms of millions, uh, you know, through the Great Leap Forward, through the Cultural Revolution, uh, and even even after Deng Xiaoping, when the opening up to the West, there was still terrible poverty in China. So at the moment, the thing that's ruling Chinese lives is money. Everybody wants money. If you want to marry somebody, you have to be able to offer them. It used to be, one Chinese person told me, it used to be a fridge or a television or both, and both and that she'd probably marry you. Now it's uh, an apartment because um, the, the, the common greeting now in China is not have you eaten, which it used to be when Rui was first there and, and during the war years and the civil war years, you greeted one another by saying, have you eaten? Now you say, have you got somewhere to live? So it's a different, it's a different China, but um, it's, I'm, I have confidence in the people. Yeah, I guess mm. the, the most... Um salient current expression of this is sort of on the streets of Hong Kong, which we've yes. seen over the last 12 weeks. Um, uh, some of the, I think, some of the most inspiring civil disobedience of, of yeah. probably courageous. the last 40 yeah. or 30 years. It's great. Yeah. And I'm just wondering how you think Riwi would have would have viewed the protesters. Um, would, would, he have, would, would he have sided with these students on the street or would he have sided with the um, <laughs> He would have been police? in a very difficult position. I often think of Tiananmen Square, which, you know, he lived near Tiananmen Square. I often think, what, what would he have done about that? Because he always said, I've got letters where he just constantly says, the young people know what's what. Listen to the young people. Um, that was his, his mantra, really, that he, he thought old people got stuck in their ways and got up to their little kingdoms and, and they were too comfortable. And that's why he supported the Cultural Revolution in the beginning, because it was that the force behind it was released by Mao was young people, students. They were all allowed to leave school and go out and tyr tyrannise everybody. I mean, it was a terrible thing. So I think he would have been very torn. I think by then... He, he probably would have just shut up, I, I suspect. Yeah. I mean, there's only so many times you can stand up bravely. <laughs> I don't know what he would have done. Hong Kong, he hated Hong Kong. He called it Treasure Island. Uh, <laughs> so he might have thought that, that, that what the students were fighting for was just to keep their treasure. Because, mm, I mean, it is a kind of Western country as well as being Chinese. Oh, certainly yeah. vastly more wealthy too. Yeah. Now, um, I've just got one final question that I think will open the floor up for questions. But, I mean, what I found interesting, your book sort of sketching out the way both in China he became a, sort of a very useful and important figure, then was mm. sidelined as essentially fashions changed. Um, and meanwhile, in New Zealand, he was effectively ignored and then vilified as a communist, because, mm. of course, um, that little matter of the Cold War. But then when both <laughs> countries um, decided to effectively open up and engage with the world, yes. suddenly he became useful again, didn't yes, he? Yes, so, I yes. mean, um, yes. he really has gone, went through the, the full cycle. Yes. 
He's a bit like, I think, the way in which um, Winston Churchill kind of is, is used as a figure to do with winning the war and then losing the peace and so on. He, he's a bit like that kind of figure. He's not, forget about Rui, the man, the, the icon and the way in which he's used, particularly diplomatically. I mean, the New Zealand embassy in China make no secret of the fact that he opened huge doors for them. Uh, New Zealand has special nation status in China, and that's entirely because of Rui and because of the cultural diplomacy which he... Um, whoops, it's the Chinese. <laughs> um, Rui, Rui was a great believer, as was uh, Joan Lai, in cultural diplomacy. You take your art to other countries and you show people your art. And that's one of the things I loved about him was he was not really a political person. He was much more of an artist. I mean, not a very good poet, but occasionally wrote good poems. Thank you, China. Um, <laughs> but uh, he made sure that a whole lot of this art that he collected just found it in the dirt. He didn't buy it. He didn't have any money. He'd buy things for maybe two yuan in the market and it would turn out to be uh, a Boda Vista from the Tang Dynasty, you know, worse probably millions. So he made sure anybody who came to visit him in China, he'd say, how much space have you got in your suitcase? And they would be taking some priceless thing back to New Zealand. Smuggling. Basically. Smuggling, yeah. yes. But Joan Lai gave him a license to do that and turned a blind eye when he did it during the Cultural Revolution, when you weren't allowed to take out anything more than $80 worth. Well, he probably, if Rui had hang on to these things, he'd be a billionaire. You know, he'd be up there with all the nasty people. <laughs> but he, um, uh, that was a great... It's the, the not particularly that, safe to be a billionaire in China these days. No, there are some, though. There are. They're called coal, they're called, um, coal barons because the first rich people uh, when China opened up were the people who found they had coal under their floorboards. Um, so they became the coal barons. And that, there, there are some phenomenally rich people in China. And it's, it's one of the, actually one of the nice family things that happened on our last night in China. My cousin Carol, it was her turn to give the speech. And we were a bit worried about her because she's not a natural speaker. And, you know, she, we just thought she might not cope. Anyway, she was completely brilliant. She stood up and, at the lectern and, and the Chinese were all there. And she started doing this to them and saying, now look here, China. <laughs> You've been very kind to us. We've had a wonderful time. We, you have been so generous. We just love being here. We want to come back, but you're doing something wrong. <laughs> and then she said, we're doing it in New Zealand too, and it's very wrong. We're making a big, big gap between the very rich and the poor. She said, so don't do it, China. Don't do it. And she sat down. Wow. And the, the Chinese all around us, we thought, what are they going to do? And there was a sort of, they all looked at it, and then they applauded and stood up. Well, on that spectacular moment of cultural diplomacy, um, <laughs> I'd like to open the floor up for questions. So to Elspeth about um, extraordinary man, Rui What was Rui Ali's attitude towards the Dalai Lama or a towards spiritual the Lama. religious leader? <laughs> oh, he was quite funny about the Dalai Lama. There's a letter in which he says, oh, I see the Americans have, have uh, whisked the Dalai Lama's brother off to America, they, which they did. I checked that, they did. He, I mean, he loved Tibet. He went there several times. He considered becoming a Buddhist. He was attracted to the Buddhist religion. 
Um, I think he thought the Dalai Lama was a puppet of the Americans. And to a certain extent, if you look at those early revolutions in Tibet, they were CIA funded. The later ones, not so much. After Nixon's visit to China, um, the, the, one of the agreements that he came to with Mao was not to fund <laughs> any more revolutions in Tibet. No. Yeah. yeah. Any other questions? And I certainly have one last one. In terms of uh, you've been, the, the, the relationship between New Zealand and China is it's, yeah. it's a really it's a really tricky one because uh, as far as I can understand it, having studied um, too long liberal um, world orders, mm. and there's been ten years of engagement with China with the hope that as 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 the, as China opened up. Mm. Inevitably, you know, mm. freedom would stream in through the gaps. Mm. And as we've seen, um, you know, history didn't end. And mm -hmm. um, we're now left at this point where, mm. um, indeed, it has opened up economically. It's yeah. a remarkable success story there. But all the tools that uh, we liberals hoped would liberalise the political system uh, have yeah. sort of been turned against it. You know, the, the, yeah. that whole great firewall, the um, remarkable social credit system which will track every citizen and award, you know, deduct points for jaywalking, but add them for reading <laughs> Xi Jinping's books. Mm. Um, I mean, where does New Zealand step now? We've got, we no longer have this unipolar world based around uh, the United States. Clearly mm. there's a, a real struggle between mm. the US and China right now, let alone Trump. Mm. Um, you know, what, what path can New Zealand tread and this is these, I mean, no one knows what comes next. As I no. said, you know, history didn't end, it's just part two, yes. and it looks to be quite a long one. Yes. Well, I think you have to take the long view. I think we have a very unique relationship with China, and we would be very foolish to mess that up. But at the same time, I think we have a humanitarian duty to uh, raise issues about um, the Uyghur people and about the arrest of journalists and um, so on. I, I think it's interesting that the Chinese... I don't think Hong Kong will turn into Tiananmen Square. I, I actually don't think they'll do it. I, I might think, be proved wrong. I think mobile phone cameras um, are, are an amazing mm. shield. Yes, Yes, and, and the world is watching in a way that it wasn't watching at Tiananmen. You know, the, the, no, I mean, those... They had one, one long lens camera effectively that's right. captured the worst of that. Cap captured Tank Man, and, yeah. and that was it, yeah. So I think that uh, there will be those kind of pressures. The problem is, in the, it seems to me, if I can make a generalisation, is that the, we have Trump in the White House, we have Boris in, in the UK. Um, not, for, yes. not for much longer. No, no <laughs> hopefully. Uh, but there is this right, very strongly powerful right-wing movement in the world now, and chi that, that feeds into China's interests hugely, because they're not they're not being criticised as much. You know, I don't think Trump is saying to him, what are you doing about the Uyghur people and what are you doing about arresting... You know, if you arrest an American, he'll do something, but, you know, to hell with the Australian guy who got arrested. So I think uh, we're in a very dangerous position at the moment, but New Zealand is in this unique place where we're not right... You know, we haven't joined that that um, white supremacy movement in the world, at least not yet. Um, we, and we can talk to the Chinese because they like us. You know, the, the, everywhere you go, it's a bit like going to Greece after the Second World War and saying you're a New Zealander and you, you don't pay for anything, you know, <laughs> because the Greeks believed that the New Zealand soldiers went there to, 
to rescue them from, from uh, fascism. So we have that kind of relationship with China, and I think we need to nurture it and um, speak what, we, what needs to be said, but also recognize that, that we, we, there are things wrong with us, too. There are certainly things wrong with the West. And when you're in China, you get the, a very different feeling about news. You do feel that there is a bias. There's an automatic bias. It's kind of in the air you breathe before you even write a story if you're looking at China from outside. If you look at it from inside, it just feels more nuanced somehow. All right, um, unless we've got... Anyone with a burning question? Oh, oh, it's all in the Canterbury Museum. There's a huge Rui uh, uh, wing. And we sent stuff there, too. It became an exchange. We sent uh, apparently moa bones, but I'm, I haven't... I'm, I've got to check that. But I know that Maori artefact and Pacifica artefacts were sent and are now in the, in the Peking Museum. Yeah. So there's that lovely kind of artistic exchange, yeah. All right, one last question at the back there. I don't know. Well, there were terrorist attacks, of course. I mean, you know, that's the background. The, the, the things were blown up and people were killed. And they say that what, what they're doing, they, their, their view is that they, the people they've put in these re-education centres have all committed a crime, all of them, <laughs> um, or an infringement of some kind, like not sending your children to school. It's part of the... Deep in the Han Chinese, there seems to be a desire for everybody to be Han Chinese, it's the Pauline Hansen view of, of the world, you know, that we are one people, but we've actually got to be one people all believing the same things. So that he, and that's what they, uh, what successive governments in China have done is they've moved Han people into Tibet, they've moved Han people into uh, Xinjiang, and they want them to integrate with the, with the, the people there and ultimately kind of dampen down their, their different approach. And, of course, the Uyghur people would like to be independent too, so that's not a good look for as far as the Chinese are concerned. Yes. I, I don't think there'll ever be a democracy in China. It, it, everybody I spoke to said it wouldn't work here. They do have, a, they have forms of democracy. They have village democracy. They, from the lower going up till you get to the sort of middle level, the county level, it's, it's democratic, you vote. But once you get to county level, you have to be a member of the party to be elected. So we should compelling. probably yes. um, let the next panel start soon. <laughs> okay. oh gosh, have we gone over time? No, oh dear. five minutes, we're all right. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you very much. Um, I really strongly recommend everyone here uh, reads Elspeth's book. Um, it's really interesting, and it's got pictures. It's always a plus. <laughs> Alice in Wonderland, we like pictures. Yeah. Well, I think we can truly say that was an extraordinarily fungible experience. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, everybody, please give a warm going west welcome to, to Elspeth and, and, and Matt. Thank you, guys. Thanks, For our next session, I'll hand you back to the capable hands of Mark very large hands. Um, just while we're resetting our stage, because we're going to load it up with talent, um, just feel free to have a stretch and um, make yourself comfortable. Um, if you, this next session is also free, so if you're here and you think you might want to hang around, um, you feel free. You're more than welcome. We'd love to have you. 
Um, this session is being presented in partnership with Auckland Museum. Um, and Dina Jezdic from the museum, I'm going to leave it to her to introduce uh, the session and the participants. I'll just make one note that if you've got a copy of the programme, uh, journalist and poet Mohammed Hassan, who is in there, wasn't able to be here in the end, which we only found out uh, after we'd printed things. So we've still got a lineup of pretty remarkable guests regardless. So um, we'll kick off in any moment. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Going West Audio. You can subscribe to the podcast and our regular updates at goingwestfest.co.nz.